If you have a Bible, take it and make your way to Matthew chapter 25. Let's come back to the fifth and final discourse that Matthew records for us of our Lord's teaching ministry. This one's called the Olivet Discourse. It's on the Mount of Olives. And um, you'll remember that Matthew's divided up more thematically than chronologically. And uh, these discourses, five of them, are uh, major headings throughout this uh, record of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we're nearing the end. We're going to finish up chapter 25 um, next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, So we'll spend this morning and next Lord's Day morning here in Matthew 25. Then we're going to take a break and uh, we'll pause. And when we come back, we'll be in chapter 26 and uh, we'll be in the Passion account heading towards the cross. And I was telling Peter Thomas this morning, if if I had any skill in planning and abilities, we would have Resurrection Sunday with the resurrection narrative. So you can be praying toward that end. I don't, I don't know how that would ever happen. Um, doesn't seem that my plans ever come to fruition. But uh, the goal will be to spend our spring, our winter and spring, in the passion account of Christ and a glorying in the cross and the work that was accomplished for us. Then triumphing in the resurrection and uh, being challenged there at the end by Christ's ministry before he left the earth. But for now, we're in Matthew chapter 25 in the second half of the Olivet Discourse. And I want to read with you just to set the table a little bit. Um, the first 30 verses of Matthew chapter 25. I think it's important for us to read all of these verses. Two parables for our consideration this morning. And uh, let's read them and then we'll pray and ask God to help us. And then we'll study them together. These are the words of God recorded for us by Matthew under the Spirit's direction. Verse number one of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose And trim their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey. Who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He would receive the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made the five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made the two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug into the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse number 22. And he also 
And, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a, a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master, master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him. And give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has will more be given, and he, who, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. Into that place, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are the words of God and paragraphs for our consideration this morning. Let's ask God to help us. Gracious Father, we come now again to you together and come boldly into your throne room seeking grace from you for these moments together as we study your word. We come not with confidence in our own merit or in our deserving a hearing from you, but rather in the merit and the worth of your son who stands as the mediator, the go-between between us as sinful human beings, and you, our holy creator, God. But we do come boldly because he does stand between us. and You have granted us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of salvation for sinners that was born in Christ's arrival, accomplished at the cross and finished in his resurrection glory. And so we come now to this study and we anticipate your blessing. We anticipate the living word doing a work in our hearts and shaping and molding us to better reflect the character of our Savior. But we do not anticipate this happening apart from you. So we ask that your spirit's work would be evident and powerful and constant. That the eyes of our understanding would be open today to these these verses that they're meaning would crash in on us, that our perspective would be adjusted, that we would be aligned with you so that we might think your thoughts after you and live lives according to the great gospel of our Lord Jesus. So I pray for those receiving your word today and the preaching of your word, that there would be a willingness to submit and surrender under your word rather than a judgment over it. And I pray for the proclamation that you would grant clarity and conviction. And there would be change in all of us as we encounter your living word. We know this is in keeping with your plans for our time. And so we ask it with confidence, believing what we cannot see. and We will turn back praise to you for how you work through our time in your word. We offer up our praise for how you've already worked in this time together. And we ask for more grace and more help from you in the name of our Savior. Amen. Just to reacclimate us with where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 25, I thought it might be helpful, especially for those of you who are visiting or first-time guests with us today, 
Um, we'd love to have you know where we've been and give you a little bit of a vantage point and perspective to where we will be in our study of 25, 1 to 30. In chapter 24, we began our look at this sermon from Christ, and we divided this up into three different studies. First study carried us through verses 1 through 14, which established for us uh, four potentials uh, that always are that consistently accompany the nearing of the coming of Christ, uh, potential deception, potential fear and terror, desertion on the part of those who would call themselves believers, and salvation as the gospel goes across the known world and anticipation of the return of Christ. In verses 15 through 31, we saw three major scenes, three major realities that accompany the return of Christ, uh, the coming of Christ. The parousia, the great enemy comes, the fraudulent Christ and prophets multiply, and then the return in glory of Jesus. Those are the three major segments of the end. And then finally, we saw in the end of chapter 24, three observations, and uh, these were on the personal level. The coming of Christ is nearer than I think it is. It is more severe or weightier than I believe it to be, and it is much more relevant than I, than I live it out to be. And so the relevance and the weightiness and the nearness of the return of Christ comes pushing in on us at the conclusion of chapter 24. And really, the end of 24 is, is overlapping into our study of chapter 25 today. The theme through all of this study of the Olivet Discourse is that Christian theology of the end is vital to Christian living in the present, right? So, the, the, the end has everything to do with the now, um, the here and the now, the nasty now and now. Uh, the sweet by and by has everything to do with the nasty now and now. Um, it's important for us. And so if we've been indifferent to the theology of the end, if we've been un, unaffected by the theology of the end, it will have fruit in our current everyday present life. And that theme will continue on as we see the parables that Christ presents to us today. Now, perhaps you came this morning with something of the Christmas, post-Christmas blues. I, I've talked to some of you asking how your week has gone, and some of you have asked me how the week has gone. And, and there's fluctuation in how much disappointment Christmas brings every year, depending on the expectations that accompany the Christmas time. But perhaps you came this morning being disappointed all over again that Christmas never comes through in the way that you think it's going to come through. In fact, I saw friends of mine yesterday already beginning the countdown to Christmas 2011. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a very loud reminder that this is an unfulfilling day in our culture. All of the excess, all of the packages, all of the food, all of the, the festivities, all of that ends and the 26th happens. And in the providence of God, we worship today on the 26th. Nothing provides a counterbalance to potential disappointment from a cultural expectation like eschatology, like the theology of the end. This study of the Olivet Discourse, and I believe our study of verses 1 through 30 in chapter 25 this morning, shock us back to what is real. It might seem that what we've done this past weekend has been the most real, but this is coming. This is eternal truth. This is to be pressing in 
on us. So the eternal glory of Jesus, the God man who satisfies all who follow him and the one who is certainly coming again is the counterbalance. And if that was the primary theme of our Christmas celebration, then we only reveled more in the satisfaction that comes through Christ. So we've got our bearings and perhaps we come to this needing it more than any other time because the Christmas season can be a soul shriveling exercise of counterfeit worship and expectations. So with Jesus commending us and informing us with the 12 disciples, as Matthew's recorded for us, we come to these parables in chapter 25 and we have a fresh reminder that Christian theology of the end is vital to Christian living today in the present. Let me take you back to a specific section of chapter 24. If you flip back a page and notice in verse number 42, we found our first therefore in this instruction from Jesus. The disciples have come to him. They've noticed the beauty of the temple. They've pointed it out to Jesus, and Jesus has told them that it's all going to lay in rubble. In fact, one block won't lay on top of another block. It's going to be flattened, which was not the, the expected response. The disciples are more than a little shaken by that prophecy from Jesus. They ask him what the end times will be like. They ask him two questions, and he goes into major instruction to set their perspective, to help them anticipate and to live according to what is coming in the end. And in verse number 42, we find for the first time, Jesus turning his instruction to stick it into their lives. And he says, therefore, and obviously building on what has just been communicated to them, that no one knows the day and the hour of the return of Christ in glory. Verse 42 says, therefore, stay awake. So there is the first command associated with the the, the return of Christ and the, the end of life as we know it. And the command is, stay awake. Follow up, there's a demand in verse number 44. Therefore, as another therefore, you also must be ready. So alertness and preparation are to be two applications of the coming of the end. It is relevant to our lives. The A Christian perspective, a biblical perspective of the end has everything to do with the way we live this week. The last week of December 2010 is informed by, as believers, is informed by eschatology. So with those two verses, we find for ourselves Jesus returning to parables. And what a joy it is to study the parables of Jesus. He's already given two of them. They were very brief right in that same section. The first parable talked about a master. If he knew he was going to be robbed, he would stay up and try to prevent the robbery. And the second one is dealing with a slave and a master. And that master coming back and finding the slave active and faithful. Stay awake. Be alert. Just like a master of a home, if he knew he was going to be robbed, if he got the bulletin that he was going to be robbed, would stay awake and be alert in his home. And secondly, be prepared or be ready, just like a slave who's awaiting the return of his master. Two small parables give way now in chapter 25 to two much lengthier parables from Christ. But their purpose is no different. There's... Very clear understanding when we read this in flow from Christ of why he's giving this to us. So we'll divide these up into three sections. We've done this with 
almost every study of the parables. We'll see the problem that prompts the pictures. We'll see the picture that provides the point, And we'll see the point that clarifies the pictures. All right? The problem, the pictures, and then the point of why Jesus is giving us these parables. So let's begin with the problem. What is it that prompts Jesus to use these parables? And really, we establish that the beginning of that problem back in verse number 42 and verse number 44 of chapter 24. The problem is it's hard to be urgently awake and preparing for something that is unknown and delayed for a lengthy period of time. It's stated on the positive side, it's easy to be complacent about events that will occur at a future unknown day and hour. And there is a long gap while waiting for them to happen. It's easy to become complacent. It's difficult to be alert and awake and actively pursuing preparation and readiness for something that we don't know when it's coming. And it takes a long time before it does come. And Jesus anticipating this, though the disciples may have thought it won't be hard to stay awake and be ready. Jesus presents them with picture after picture, four pictures two brief ones and now these two lengthier ones to help them understand and to put, to put a picture to His words, calling them to live in light of the end in the present. Because a biblical understanding of the end informs and has everything to do with a biblical life in the present. So the problem is Jesus had these 12 men looking back at Him and all 12 of them Minus one who would defect, all 12 of them would live the remainder of their lives. After just a few few days, really, they would live their lives with these words stuck in their minds. Stay awake. I've got to be ready. Because Christ is coming and we don't know the day and the hour. Jesus presents them now with these helpful clarifications through word pictures. Remember that parables are true to life stories. These are not fanciful. These are not unbelievable. These are true to life accounts that Jesus is using to clarify the truth that he's trying to drive home to those who are hearing him. So how are the disciples supposed to wait for the unknown day and hour? And what does an awake and ready kingdom citizen look like? What does that mean? Does that mean we go and sit on a hill somewhere and stare off into the clouds? Does it mean we sell everything we have? Move to a, a commune somewhere? Take on funny names? David Koresh comes to mind? Other weird people? Is that, is that awake and alert and ready? Because, brothers and sisters, people have been doing that from, from, from this time forward. So Jesus here provides the the answer to the questions that are looking back at him. What does it mean? What does it look like for me to obey the application of the theology of the end? How do we live in light of the coming end? So that's the problem that prompts the pictures. Now let's look at the pictures. And there are two. The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the three slaves. I think that's probably a better parallel uh, than... The parable of the talents. It's really not a parable about the talents. It's about the slaves. So we have ten virgins and we have three slaves. Two word pictures used for us and for these disciples there on the side of the mountain to help visualize what was being commanded 
of them. Now, be careful as we study these that you don't find yourself wanting answers to every detail and a correlating purpose. That's what we've called before making that parable walk on all fours. Well, what is the oil? And what's a flask? And who are the dealers? Uh, Be careful, because when you go into that approach to understanding the parables, often it leads you away from the very very realistic point that Jesus is trying to make with a true-to-life story. So it's obvious in both of these parables that there is someone who's away, who's coming, and there are people who are receiving that arrival. Okay, so that's, that's not difficult for us to understand. Jesus is away, and his coming will be met by those who are anticipating it or those who have not wisely anticipated his coming but be careful as we study these that you don't find yourself lost in demanding an explanation for every detail these are just stories from jesus with which he uses them to clarify to make obvious the commands of alertness readiness and a watchfulness for his return So beginning with the parable of the ten virgins, let's look at this parable with a little more detail. Verse number one tells us that there were ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And officially, when we read verse one, we are culturally disconnected from this parable. We have no appreciation for what's happening. We don't know anything other than the word bridegroom. That's the only thing that really stands out to us is, oh, yes, I know what that is. We don't understand what the lamps were. We don't even know what these ten virgins were for. Perhaps we think of them as as bridesmaids. And so as you're reading that, you're remembering your wedding. You're remembering, oh, yeah, the ladies that were in your wedding. Aren't they great friends? What's this groom saying he doesn't know them for? I mean, what is that all about? Of course he knows them. They're the forgetful bridesmaids. So we're completely culturally disconnected from what's happening here. This is a major ceremony. Fathers of the brides in this room. You can be thankful that we only have a one-day event. This is weeks, this is days going on and on. People are waiting and anticipating. And we find out that these ten virgins who are some kind of helpers to the bride. The bride's not even mentioned. We don't even have the bride in the story because she's not important to the point of what Jesus is trying to communicate. These ten virgins are waiting for the, the, the bridegroom, the groom, to come get them and bring them to his house. At the groom's house, there would be the, the really the, the culmination of the celebration. So the feast is going to happen at the groom's house. That's where everybody who's anybody is going to be. And they've got these torches, which is probably a much better picture. Sticks wrapped with rags. They dip them in oil. They light them on fire. It's a lot less glamorous than whatever lamp you might have thought of in your mind. These gals carry torches. You've got to love a woman that carries a torch. Right? Ten girls, they got torches. And they're waiting for that bridegroom to come and say, it's time for the big party. Come with me. Let's go. The bride's going to be there. All of the family's going to be there. And the feast is going to be phenomenal. And these, these, these ten virgins that are to help and minister in some way to the bride are divided by really only one distinctive quality. It's not that they slept. It's not that they were tired because of the delay. The bridegroom was taking his merry good old time coming to get them. That wasn't the distinction. It wasn't that some of them 
didn't sleep and some of them did. The distinction was some of them prepared for a delayed coming. And some of them did not prepare for a delayed coming. And in the end, the ones that had not prepared were cut off from the benefits of that wedding feast. So five of them were fools and five of them were wise. And the reason for the foolishness and the wisdom was all about flasks of oil. Those are feeder flasks. That's just a little container of oil that they could dump on the rags and relight it so that they had more light. So they brought their torches. Everybody had a torch. Everybody had oil on their torch. But only five of them prepared for a lengthy delay in the coming of the bridegroom. And it's at midnight. Verse number six says, with a cry, there is the shock, the the imagery matches what Jesus has told us about, the second coming of Christ, the trumpet sound, the cry of the archangel. In the story, there's a cry at midnight. The bridegroom's here, come out to meet him. And notice the pandemonium that breaks out in whatever sleeping quarters are being represented here. There is scurrying around. They trimmed off the burned parts of their torches. So now they have fresh cloth on their torch. But there's a problem. Only five of them have oil. And the five who didn't prepare for the lengthy period in between or awaiting the coming of the bridegroom are now left to ask the other gals, give us some of that oil. Jesus uses something that's so familiar to the twelve, so unfamiliar to us, to make quite obvious a picture that would put visual aid to what he is commanding in the awake and ready watchfulness of his people. But the wise answered verse number nine, since there will not be enough for us and for you, if we share it, none of us get a well lit walk to the bridegroom's house. You go to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now I'm interested in why the English standard version chose the word dealers, since the connotation of dealers is kind of a funny one. I mean, kind of picture these oil dealers, you know, these are the guys that they have it inside of their cloak. So they open it up and they have flasks and they rip you off for it. They're dealers. I don't know what they are. They're merchants. They're in the, the market. And these gals now in the middle of the night are left to go try to find a merchant who will sell them some oil. They do. They do. And they go and buy the oil Jesus goes on to drive home his intended point with this story. In verse number 10, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And at this point, if you weren't with the procession going to the bridegroom's house, you were considered to be a freeloader. You were a party crasher. You were going to the wedding to get a good meal, to try to slip in and be a part of the feast. So you come knock on the door and say, hey, we missed it. We actually were a part of the the group that's supposed to help your bride, but we ran out of oil. It's a long story, but now we're here. And the bridegroom says, no, I've seen this a thousand times over. I don't know you. I don't know you as a part of our procession. Door closed, case closed. You're not getting in Notice the appeal of the ten or the five foolish virgins in verse number 11. They came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, 
I do not know you. That, that's an ominous, that brings back an ominous part of our scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous of Jesus' sermons that Matthew records. We remember Jesus using words just like this. And we'll look at them in a few minutes to talk about his response to people who are talking to him. So parable number one is the parable of the ten virgins. And Jesus here utilizes this true to life story. A story that would be familiar to the hearers to point out and to make obvious what preparation looks like. Preparation means setting aside and being resourceful with the anticipation of a delayed arrival from the bridegroom. Now be careful. Again, don't make this story walk on all fours. Where's the bride? Who is the bride? Um, is she somebody that we should know about? What are the lamps? What do they signify? What, uh, who are the dealers? Are they evil or are they good? Jesus is making a case for preparation and readiness for his people. He makes a second case in the second parable and distinct from the first. The second parable is about three slaves. Three slaves are called in by their master who is going on a journey. Verse number 15, he doles out talents. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting term because that's, that's a weight measurement. Talent is not a coin. You could have a gold talent. You could have a silver talent. You could have some other precious metal talent. Talents were defined by what they were made out of. They're a weight. So the value is, is not a... We, we can't know the value, but it's a high, high numerical value. This is a high dollar situation. These slaves were special, almost like partners in the business. They're being entrusted as stewards with the resources of the master. He gives them his money and he leaves. Now we are, if you grew up around the church, many of us are familiar with this story. But the truth that Jesus is so clearly driving home for me has been lost in this story. So five talents, two talents, one talent. Are the talents spiritual gifts? What are the talents? Well, let's, let's pause that because Jesus is trying to make a case for a picture about the end times. And what he presents to us here is not difficult if we simply allow ourselves to see the true-to-life story that he's using. So five talents, two talents, one talent. He goes away. The guy with five makes ten. The guy with two makes four. The guy with one buries it has one. It's not that complex. Verse number 19. Now, after a long time, here's the delayed arrival. A long time. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He's returned to find out how they've utilized what he's entrusted to them. Now, notice what goes on. The man with five comes and says, I've got ten. The master responds, verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Second scenario, the guy with two comes and says, I've got four. Same response. The issue here was the faithfulness with, which, with, with what they had been entrusted with. So what each man had, if he was faithful, he received one response. It was well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Verse 23, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the praise of the master and the 
the joy of the master, the presence of the master, the pleasure of the master are the two responses to the two faithful or wise slaves. And then there's the one who is just as much a slave, but is a foolish slave. Now, verse 24, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Now notice his description of the hardness, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So in other words, you make money off of situations that you don't personally touch. And I don't like it. I'm not comfortable with this situation. You making money off of something that you didn't do or work to do. So I was afraid because I knew if I didn't make something, you were going to be upset with me. I knew that this situation was bad. If I made something, you take it. If I don't make something, I'm in big trouble. So in the fear of that, the slave says in verse 25, I went and hid your talent in the ground here. And notice these last words. You have what is yours. This is one brash slave. You have what is yours. And in relation to what the others had given him, he was saying the master received what was not his. He didn't sow, but he got the, seed, he got the harvest. He was reaping where he had not sown. But this slave gives him back what is his, this one talent. The response is shocking. Verse 26, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. You knew that I was all about maximizing what had been entrusted to you for the furtherance of my wealth, says the master. And gather where I have scattered no seed. Verse 27, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Take that talent from him. Give it to the guy with 10. The guy with 10 gets 11. And send this one out into outer darkness. And Jesus here uses the phrase that he's used repeatedly. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus here moves beyond this little story. And at the conclusion of this parable, he is clearly talking about eternal truths. Don't miss this. This unfaithful servant, this poor steward for the master is banished for eternity. Apart from the joy of the master that is the the inheritance of the faithful slaves. Stewardship is successful based upon faithfulness only. One commentator said this, the foolish versions failed from thinking their part too easy. They didn't think that they had to do anything. But the wicked servant fails from thinking his too hard. He, he thought, you know what I've got to do is too risky. He's too hard of a man. So I'll just sit on my hands, bury the talent that has been granted to me and give it back to him when he comes. Both receive rejection and condemnation. Now, there are some implications from from both of these parables that we should probably highlight before we jump off and go to the point of these pictures from Jesus. Number one implication, there is a coming day of final judgment. I mean, Jesus is reiterating with stories that there's a coming day that is final in its judgment. And there's an ongoing judgment that's taking place. And there's an ongoing assessment that's happening. We're, we're the created. He's the creator. He is judge over us. But there's a coming day when judgment will be final, where there is no turning back. There is no changes that are going to take place following this 
judgment. It's very real. We'll talk about it next Lord's Day as Jesus describes it, beginning in verse number 31 down through the end of the chapter. But, but note that there is a final judgment. The five foolish versions are permanently out of the wedding feast. And the foolish slave is permanently out of the family of his master and the stewardship that had been entrusted to him. This is over. This isn't debtor's prison. This isn't stay out there until daylight and then when I can see you, I'll figure out whether or not you're a part of the party and I'll let you in. It's over. And that's the point that Jesus is presenting. There is a coming day that is marked by final conclusive judgment. Number two implication. There is a coming day matched with that final judgment of real reward for Christ's people. The principles here are inescapable. Who has been faithful with little will be granted much. Well done, good and faithful servant will not be the will not be the phrase that is granted to all in that final judgment. Many, many on that day who say I'm one of Christ's will not hear well done, good and faithful servant, but rather will hear banished. Weeping and gnashing of teeth place for you. So there's a final judgment coming and there is a final reward that is coming. Believers, there is a gracious reward coming from our Savior. He lived, died, and rose to make us sons and daughters of God. And in His overwhelming grace, He then rewards us for faithfulness for what He's made us to be. He's entrusted us with blessings and benefits. And as stewards, we will, we will receive a just reward for our labors for Christ. Number three implication, not all so-called Christians will be in the kingdom. And this is hard to miss. Uh, the, the five foolish virgins and the one slothful slave, those are, those are real in the stories. Those are very connected people. But they are set aside and there will be many who are so-called believers or unbelieving believers, pagan believers, who will claim the name of Christ who will not be in the kingdom of Christ. Because at the final judgment, when the final reward is doled out, they will found to, to have lived their lives apart from awake, re- ready preparation and faithfulness for the return of Christ. One final implication, and this goes on a Bible study note. Jesus here, you'll remember from our study of chapter 24, perhaps we mentioned this. Jesus is telescoping here in his understanding. So think of that telescope. We open up and and if we open up the telescope, we see all the divisions that are in that telescope. But when we close it, we only see the, the part where you put your eye and the lens at the end where we get to see everything big. So Jesus here crunches this down and says, when I come back, final judgment happens. That's the telescope closed. Because when he comes back, there are other events that will take place before there is a final and conclusive judgment. So when we read these words and these stories and the kingdom of heaven coming and the return of Christ coming, understand that Jesus is condensing to drive home the necessity of readiness on the part of his people. He deals with the return and then the final judgment without opening the telescope to show us all the different events that will take place in between. This will continue as we conclude our study of chapter 25 next week. Jesus refers to final judgment as in heaven for eternity or hell for eternity in direct connection with his coming. 
his arrival. There will be years and years in between his arrival and this finality, but it is coming. And when he arrives, it is here. Therefore, he calls for living in light of the end. Christian theology of the end is vital to Christian living in the present. So what is the point? Well, we we missed one verse. We missed verse number 13 because in verse number 13 we find our third therefore in this Olivet Discourse. Therefore, Jesus says, watch. Watch. For you know neither the day nor the hour. And if we were left to think that watching was some kind of passive activity, we have these parables to help clarify. So we have the problem that prompts the parables or the pictures. We have the pictures that drive home the point. And now we have the point that makes the meaning behind the picture so obvious. Watching, waiting for the return of Christ is no passive bump on a log activity. It is no sitting by and sleeping. It is not lounging. It is active, faithful stewardship and preparation. The center for or the hinge for these two parables, I believe, is in verse number 13 with his watch. Therefore, the explanation is simple from Jesus. You know, neither the day nor the hour. So as much as you don't know, do live accordingly. We like to we like to say we we live and then we learn. And as one of our professors in seminary taught us, we should live, we should learn and then live. And when we think of learning and then living, it means I get to know certain things. And by knowing certain things, then I'm, I'm affected in the way I live. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But Jesus here goes one step beyond that and says, what you don't know affects how you live. And what you don't know is the day and the hour when the end will come. And in not knowing that, you then should be awake, staying awake, You must be ready and you must watch. Watching being the active preparation and faithful stewardship in the interval until Christ returns. Eschatology cannot be set aside as unimportant or inconsequential to my daily life. In fact, brothers and sisters, I would propose to you that our lives for Christ or our lack of living for Christ, is directly connected to how little we have considered the end. Why are we so ineffective so often in our lives as believers? Why is our witness so limited? Why is the effect on our culture seemingly so small at times? No doubt a part of that puzzle is that we have not considered deeply, we do not live in light of the end. We believe what we can see. And what we can see is is flooding at us. Jesus here presents us not just with what we can't see in the future, but what we don't know when, when this will take place. We have an unknown date. We have an unseen reality. And only those who walk by faith are affected by such invisible truths. So there's a problem That demands these parables. And the problem is. It's easy for us to be complacent. When there's a delay. And an unknown date and time. It is easy for us as God's people. To become very lax. In fact Peter was concerned about that very thought. You remember this? 2 Peter chapter 3. 
Don't consider the slowness of the return of Christ as some kind of laziness on Christ's part or some kind of indifference on his part. Let's turn there. Let's read from 2 Peter chapter 3 because the application that Peter drives home is so important to our study of this all of a discourse. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Peter says to the believers, to whom he's writing, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that while the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand, day, a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. So some would think of that slowness as a negative. But God is not slow in that way, but rather is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. There will be a final judgment. Now what does Peter say? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will be will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. Verse number 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity, the last day. Amen. So the point that clarifies these pictures is that our lives for Christ as we wait for his return, are to be marked by active waiting, preparation, and faithful stewardship. Christian theology of the end is vital to Christian living in the present. So what do we do with these parables? How do we walk away from here and obey Matthew 25, verses 1 through 30? I trust your desire is not just to understand them. Understanding them is critical. And it is a gift from the Spirit of God. But understanding them must then lead to obeying these verses. These parables must be obeyed. These are, these are a part of what Jesus has commanded us in our discipleship is to observe, to live in light of these words. So let me offer a few thoughts by way of conclusion and application for us this morning. Number one, let me address those of you who are believing unbelievers or you are unregenerate believers. You know facts about Jesus. You know facts about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you do not know Jesus or better. He doesn't know you. Consider these parables carefully because your unfaithful, unprepared life will be called into judgment and your end will be the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23. When Jesus says, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord. We did this and we did that in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. 
So if you're here as some kind of nominal Christian, this, this is an activity because this is what Christians do. This is not because you're in a relationship with God secured through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Granted to you by the power of the Spirit as He gave life to faith in you. Christ must know you. Which only takes place through your bankrupt submission in faith to Him. So be careful. Those who are quick to say, I'm a Christian, but know nothing of active, obedient, prepared, alert, faithful stewardship in waiting for the return of Christ. If there are if there is one thing that you think would be more exciting to make sure happen before Christ comes, it's time to consider these passages carefully. Number two, for those of you who are here and you are regenerate believers. And we struggle with the presence of sin, though its power has been broken. Its presence is with us. We find ourselves doing what we would not want to do. And not doing what we desire to do. Watching, brothers and sisters, is living wisely. So let me ask you a few questions. Grace Church family, guests with us that are in Christ, let me ask you a few questions to help us get down to obeying Matthew 25. One, how are you pursuing watchful living? How do we pursue? I mean, legitimately, can we list out ways that we pursue, we, we go after, we grab at watchful living? What are the means of having a watchful life? There are means. What are they? And if it's hard to come up with them, allow that to be the first place of consideration. Ask the Spirit of God to help you appropriately apply His means of grace. The application of His truth to your life. The fellowship of his people in your life. The fellowship of your heart with your Savior or through your Savior with your Father in prayer. How do you pursue watchful living? Number two, do you daily prepare for the arrival of your king? Um, in other words, do you have a flask of oil? Do I? Do we daily prepare? Do we, as a part of our our gospel morning, as we experience and revel in new mercies, preaching the gospel again to our own hearts. We don't deserve God's kindness. We don't deserve His favor. We deserve His wrath. But Christ has stood between us and God, and He's made way for us to know Him. He's granted us eyes to see the glories of His Son, so that we might be called His sons. How then do we daily prepare for the arrival of that Christ? We must apply a biblical theology of the end. Simply knowing about it today or this morning does not in any way assure that this will be a part of our daily experience this week. So how am I daily preparing for the arrival of my king? Am I prepared for the delay? Number three, do you daily pursue faithful stewardship for his kingdom? How is it that you daily pursue stewardship? Do you even view your life as stewardship? Do I? Often our world is telling us our lives are for us. Our possessions are ours. There are rights. That's what we can demand. 
We have no rights. We have no demands. We are bought with a price. The infinite price of the death of Christ. We are his. We are his slaves. We are stewards. Everything we have has been entrusted to us for the furtherance of his kingdom. So are we daily and how are we daily pursuing faithfulness as stewards? How can we be careful not to bury the talent and sit on our hands? How can we be careful to make sure we are not trimming the wick or trimming the rags down and finding we have no oil? How do we pursue watchful living? We daily prepare for the arrival of our servant king and we daily pursue faithful stewardship of all that he's entrusted to us from the top to bottom for the extension of his kingdom. A biblical Christian theology of the end is vital to a biblical Christian life today. These are the words of God for our consideration. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Matthew chapter 25. Thank you for these simple stories that carry such profound truth. Thank you for the preservation of this record of the master teacher, our our Savior, our King. It is no small miracle that we are able to open it in our own language and to study it and to have your spirit breathe life into these words, to use this truth to change us, to cut into places that can't be cut into, to divide where there is no division. These are living, breathing words, and we thank you for your spirit's power at work through them and those of us who are yours. May we be affected by the end as we live in the present this week. And Father, I pray for those who might be with us who would claim to know facts or know about Christ or to have some, some external or merely intellectual assent of gospel truths. But they have never experienced new life breathed into them by the Spirit. They have never, they have never known the thirst-quenching water of life that comes in Christ. Would you drive home upon their hearts the weightiness of a coming, final, sudden judgment? And may the fear that grips them drive them to look to the only hope, the suffering and the victorious resurrection of your Son. And may they turn from their own way And believe what they cannot see. Believe the truth that is given to them in your word. So that in believing, repenting and believing, they might be rescued by the Savior from the coming judgment of the Savior. So do a work in us. Continue to work in us. You're at work and we are so thankful for the fruits of grace that we see. The way you've even used these these teachings from Christ about the end to inform us in the present. Continue, Father, we ask, so that we might better reflect your character. We might resemble your son more accurately so that we might be more distinct from our culture. So that our testimony of the good news of salvation through Christ might be effective for the extension of your kingdom. May your fame be known in our valley because... You're changing us and using us as bold proclaimers of the good news. 
We thank you for baby Jesus. We thank you that Christmas took place because we were sinners. And we anticipate this arrival, this second coming that will mark the coming end of human history. May we live with faith in past grace. And may we look with faith toward future grace. So that we might bring glory and honor to you, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen.